My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Camilla Marcus, chef owner of Westbourne. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Camilla about the pending implosion of the restaurant industry, what we can do to save it, and we'll hear Camilla's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best to everyone coping with the pandemic and our sincere thanks to all the essential workers keeping us going. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We've discussed Julia's deep appreciation for chefs and their societal contributions many times, so it's not a stretch to assume that Julia would be strongly advocating for saving restaurants during the pandemic. You could say that Julia owed her career to restaurants. Her epiphany about food came in a Rouen restaurant over a plate of Sol Mounier. That one restaurant meal changed the trajectory of her life. Would we have had Mastering the Art of French Cooking, or the French Chef, or the reset of the American food industry without that meal? Maybe, maybe not. Regardless, it's a great representation of how valuable restaurants can be personally and to society. I'll add my own personal debt to restaurants. The luncheonette called The Palms, my grandparents owned and ran for 20 years on Long Island, provided not only a career for my grandfather when he had no other options, but laid a foundation for future generations of my family to prosper. Joining us today is someone who also believes that restaurants are a vital part of our society and must receive greater support to survive the pandemic, especially as their employees who devote their lives to taking care of others, are suffering disproportionately. Camilla Marcus is a chef, entrepreneur, and advocate who is named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. She's the chef founder of Westbourne, a pioneering hospitality business which started as a zero-waste restaurant in Manhattan. Camilla closed the restaurant in September 2020 due to COVID and pivoted to online retail, packaged provisions, and curated culinary experiences. In response to the pandemic, Camilla co-founded Roar, Relief Opportunities for All Restaurants, whose mission is to advocate for small restaurants severely impacted by the pandemic, with a long-term goal to create a more sustainable future specifically for New York's hospitality industry. She is also a founding member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, also known as the IRC, which advocates for the rights of independent restaurants through national legislation. The IRC has been one of the leading voices lobbying Congress for a large-scale and lasting solution to support thousands of small business owners across the country. 
Camilla joins us today to talk about why saving restaurants matters and what you can do to help. Welcome to the podcast, Camilla. Thank you so much for having me. So we're glad you could join us. I really just feel so strongly about the importance of this subject and this situation. But before we kind of dive into like the big picture, what's at stake, what we can do, what matters, I always think it's helpful to start with the personal. And I was hoping you would just kind of share a little bit about what your own restaurant experience and coping with the pandemic ha- has been and meant. Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> um, so, I mean, as we all know, really, the world sort of changed on a dime, you know, in March. And, you know, I would argue no industry has been hit quite as hard as restaurants. And, you know, for me, it's it's terribly brutal and painful watching and experiencing myself, you know, people that we care about, people that we, you know, are supposed to be in our care, Um you know, being mandated so heavily by the government to close, to pivot, to change, to close again um, without any form of restructuring or relief from any level of government. When you're talking about the second largest employer in the country, um, you know, I, I've started unfortunately saying, you know, it's really getting to be an inhumane situation because I think what the missing link is, Look, you you state a policy. Okay, restaurants close. You know, New York today just announced the closure of indoor dining. Los Angeles about two weeks ago closed both indoor and, and outdoor. So any on-premise dining um, and throughout California as well. And, and other states and cities are surely following. You know, what I think the disconnect is, that means people lose their jobs and their livelihoods. And I think the challenge, you know, for me personally is, where are they going, right? You know, okay, you want to provide no relief or no commensurate restructuring for a command. Well, great. So who's hiring, you know, 15 million people, which is how many people we employ across the country? I don't know where they're going. So to me, you know, it's it's been so painful and brutal to see especially this year being an election year, I remember saying in March, you know, my deepest concern is that this would get political. And what that means is it really moves away from being human. And this is about people. This is about people who don't know how they're going to provide for their families over the holidays. This is about people who don't know week to week whether they're going to be employed. And about restaurant owners who care deeply about those, you know, not just guests, but more importantly, the people on our teams who for a lot of us have been with us for a very long time and who we care about very deeply, you know, are that's our family, right? You spend more time with people that you work with, frankly, than than your own families at home, especially in this business. And really to be to not be able to look someone in the eye and know how to protect them, to take care of them, to keep them, and what to tell them because everything about your business since March is absolutely out of your control in such a large way. Um, it's it's really just, you know, pretty demoralizing, infuriating, and and sad to see a system, you know, really just ignore so many people um, whose lives are on the line and, ha- and have been for eight months, you know, with no answer to our calls. And why do you think that is? Is, is it something about the very nature of well, and almost a travesty because it's usually touted that small business is the strength and the you know employment and the actual employment engine of the country. But do you think that's in- inhibiting it because any one individual restaurant only employs 
X number of people so that the individual loss is not a wide scale destruction or like do you, what's your insight into why that's not being recognized? I think it's a few things. I think first and foremost, we've just, I don't think most people until the pandemic realized what a big force we were socially, culturally, and economically. I don't think most people knew that we're the second largest private employer next to healthcare. I know a lot of restaurant owners didn't even know that. I don't think the government has really been acutely aware. We've always been lumped in with small businesses. And I think a little bit to what you said, the disparate ownership, right? You know, we're not like airlines where there's only a couple to talk to. And I think, you know, before the IRC, I don't think we were as organized and as um, focused and coalesced as we could have been and frankly should have been. Um, And I think... Even further than that, you know, we're an industry, as you said earlier on, we live to take care of others. You know, we're the people that make you feel like everything's okay. We're on we're on stage and making the environment, whenever you're with us, feel calm and positive and secure. Um, we've never asked before, right? You know, we've never been the ones to say, hey, you know what, we need to be taken care of. And it's really sort of cuts against our nature, I think, to be that way, right? You know, we're the chin up, get it done, hustle, uh, you know, pivot and and roll with it. But this is just so far out of our hands that I think the challenge is there's no precedence for this. You know, I don't think the government, and I would argue the public to a large extent, have ever really seen us for what we are. Um, as you said, such a tremendous employing force. And frankly, one of the last frontiers to a real middle class. I mean, I I love to ask lawmakers, when was the last time you hired someone who didn't go to college? You know, when was the last time you hired someone who sort of needed a second chance? These are real open career pathways that don't exist, you know, hardly anywhere left in our society and in our economy. And they're critical. Like I said, you know, if there was a plan to absorb 15 million people into other industries, great, you want to put us out of business and take us off the shelf, you know, I can't, I can't force the government not to do that. But I think it is a a gross misstep to not calculate, you know, what the byproduct of that is going to be. And, and I do think it's just lack of awareness. I think it's never been done before. And I think creating a new pathway, a new you know, a new relief structure, a new perspective on an industry that's never been done by government before and asking them to do that in a very short amount of time during a pandemic, during a very heated election year, you know, our government doesn't move that quick already. And this is just an incredible amount of headwinds. So I think, I think there's a lot of things at play. And I think that, you know, like I said, I think the biggest one is just not fully understanding and embracing, you know, we might be a collection of small businesses, but collectively we are not a small business and we operate very uniquely from other industries and we shouldn't continue to be lumped into this sort of larger mechanism because we're not the same and we shouldn't be treated as the same. And that's the hope going forward. And for those who listen, but maybe have not been as acutely following that situation, because obviously there, this year there's been plenty of devastation and problems to follow. Could you talk a little bit more about not so much the specific job loss, but the societal cost of what we're risk of losing? Because I think people 
as you said, and I also think that nationally, it hasn't played out exactly the same in every state or city. So California, New York have, have seen a really brutal kind of crackdown on closing restaurants, whereas other parts of the country, I was talking to someone in Florida who was saying, oh, they're still operating, the weather's good. So, you know, there's that unevenness, which I think then contributes to not everyone, especially when you're talking about the kind of national support that's needed that we'll talk about later, is understanding what could go away, literally completely. So from your point of view, what what are we at risk of losing? and, And what have we potentially already lost? Well, I would say a lot. I mean, to me, first and foremost, I think that restaurants really represent so much of the American dream. And as, you know, maybe arguably cheesy or trite that sounds, I genuinely believe it. Like I said, there are very few zero barrier to entry jobs that have long-term career prospects around the country, if not around the world, right? There's always restaurants around the world hiring. It is an incredibly, incredibly viable and promising career for anyone who just wants to work hard and cares about taking care of others. I think that letting that languish is going to have drastic effects on our culture, on our people, on our economy, on our faith in the system. Um, And I think, you know, on a more granular scale, look, restaurants keep neighborhoods safe. You know, we're open late. We have people around all the time. You know, I think what we all saw in March during the national pause and shutdown was, you know, streets don't feel the same, right? You know, neighborhoods don't feel the same because stores and homes aren't open the way that we are. They're not activated. They're not, um, they're not flourishing and alive. And I think that that, um, I think that security, I think that vibrancy, I think that attraction and gathering for people, um, you know, is being wiped out. And and look, if we want the future to be banks and chains, you know, on every street across America, you know, I'd be very, very distraught to see that be what the government thinks the future of America is, because I certainly don't. And I think that it's what gives fabric and culture and diversity and as I said safety to to towns and cities everywhere I you know regardless of how COVID's impacting businesses you know yes Miami's still open but they're still reeling from seven months I mean they were also affected in March it's not like you know things are back up and everything's up to normal and you know everyone's okay I mean everyone's in a hole no matter how you cut it. The question is how deep that hole is and how hard it is to get out of. And and I do think it's threatening the American dream and the vibrancy of our, our towns and cities that make America what it is. No, and I think the, the thing that I, I think is worth discussing, and I was curious your take on it, which is, and it's, it's always been a little bit true in the restaurant business that you you can't judge a book by its cover, and a lot of restaurants struggle to stay in business full stop. There have been some like furlough plans and things like that that have extended things, but pretty much any restaurant that isn't a major chain that's still operating is likely in debt. And that the potential, because there's also a lag effect, right, is that the damage is so severe that six months from now, no matter what happens today, we may lose a huge number of of restaurants, as you eloquently put, as the fabric of our communities. Do do you think that's true? I inherently am a true optimist. So (laughs) I always believe that there's something to do. And I don't really believe, I believe in looking at what can we do today. I can't worry about what that's going to do 
two months, six months, a year from now. But what is true is that no level of government, and I want every listener to hear this, not a single level of government, federal, state, or city, has given industry-specific relief or proposed a restructuring plan for restaurants, despite the fact that we have very clearly been crushed by this pandemic, no different than prior economic downturns, no prior than, you know, tragedies before. This is compounding all of the, you know, all of the horrific consequences of this pandemic. To me, you know, I said this in March and it's still true. The difference between a recession and a depression is mass unemployment. What do you, you know, what do you think crushing this industry without relief is going to do on top of a major health crisis that has taken, you know, an extraordinarily painful death toll? I mean, not a single level of government has helped, offered to help, has stepped up. The House passed the Restaurants Act. It's been stalled in the Senate and no state or city has come up with a restructuring plan for an industry that is in structural failure and that affects a huge part of our culture and economy. That should be unacceptable to every single American. I don't care where you live, what you do as a job, what you believe, what party you belong to, who you voted for. Like I said, this is about humans. This is about 15 million people who are being utterly crushed and utterly ignored. And, can we and we will about- pay for it. <laughs> and we will pay for it. So my feeling is, what can we do today? We can pass the Restaurants Act. We can call on every single state governor to come up with a restructuring plan for this industry, without which, you know, to say, hey, it may not make a difference. I'd rather look back and say it didn't make a difference, but sure as hell we tried, you know, harder than we could have ever tried. I don't want to look back and say what would have happened if we had done what seems right in front of our faces to be quite possible. <laughs> you know, what's the what's the reasoning behind not doing it? You know, I think we have to ask ourselves not why, but why not. And could you tell us a little bit more? And obviously that's great news that the house already passed it, although shocking news of how long it's already been languishing in the Senate unpassed, but could you just share what are the key components of the save of what's just called the Restaurants Act, right? Um, it is a hundred and twenty billion dollar um, grant program for restaurants suffering through the pandemic um, that provides again industry specific relief. You know, unfortunately, PPP was not designed with restaurants in mind, and it doesn't fit what's happening for us, right? Being shut down for lengths of time. Um, having a huge, huge decrease in sales, um, rising costs due to PP&E and compliance with new regulations. Um, we need we need grants, not more debt, right? And we need long-term grants that cover the extent of this pandemic. I mean, the effects on the restaurant industry are closer to 18 to 24 months, not eight weeks. Um, so that's what it's designed. And it's designed to cover expenses such as, you know, cost of goods sold and things that, again, other businesses may not have quite as large of a, of a burden um, and an obligation there that restaurants specifically do. I mean, I know this is not maybe preferred language, but just to, so people can get their heads around it, 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 is it, it's a bailout plan and probably not dissimilar to the bailout plan that banks got um, 
what was it, a little over 10 years ago, and probably at a Banks, the auto industry, the airline industry, there's precedent for helping industries time and time again. It's just a refusal to do it for ours. Yeah. So I just wanted people to understand (laughs) in context, there's precedent. It's the same thing. It's just for a different industry, the one that arguably has been the hardest hit and probably with the the shallowest pockets. of. And and I would argue a much smaller amount than has been done before for other industries that, you know, we far eclipse with regards to employment. We employ more people in New York and restaurants than airlines do nationwide. And remember, they received a bailout in March and airlines never even have been mandated to close. They weren't even mandated for capacity restrictions, not once during this pandemic. And well, and they were able to take advantage of furlough programs too, in a... Uh, And issue securities and cover stock buybacks from the year before. So, you know, there is precedence and, you know, I would argue lower ROI programs for our country that have been implemented. You know, as I said, I think there's an intransigence, especially right now. I mean, this is a, a very apropos time to be having this conversation because, you know, this is sort of the, the final week of, I think, you know, 2020 relief negotiations on the Hill. And you know, the Senate is is proving to be quite intransigent. They want to keep PPP because they want to keep faith in the program. They don't want to focus on specific industries. And it's a it's a glaring mistake. And and again, there's a lot of politics um, involved because of the election year. And and it's sad, really, because at the end of the day, we need leaders. We, We don't need policy. We need innovation and we need bold action to save an industry you know, like I said, that is the effects will be long lasting and perilous if we don't do something now. And the solution is on their table. They're just refusing to sign it. And as I said, it eclipses the, the, the extent of its effect eclipses other industries when you talk about people. Um, And the amount requested is not even close to being as large as what other industries have asked for and received time and time again. Well, let's talk more about the obstacles to passing it and what hope hope there may be and how we can help after the break. As this is the last show of the season and of 2020, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think of the show. Who do you want to hear from on future episodes? And please remember to leave us a review, ideally on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. As you may know, it really helps new listeners discover the show. We'll be back with more from Camilla Marcus about what we can do to help save our restaurant industry. Stay with us. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. 
To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America, along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back. We're talking to chef and entrepreneur Camilla Marcus of Westbourne, co-founder of Roar, Relief Opportunities for All Restaurants, and a founding member of the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, about the quest to save the American restaurant industry from pending devastation. So Camilla, we were talking about where the Restaurant Act is and essentially stalled and how much good it could do. And we started to talk about essentially the Senate being a key obstacle. But could you give us a little more detail of I mean, is it, is it that simple that people just need to call their senators and tell them they support this? Right now it is. I think every single person who has Instagram should be posting, posting, posting nonstop, save restaurants, pass the Restaurants Act, included in this current relief bill. Um, every single state senator, I mean, key ones right now um, – you know, Rubio being uh, the head of small business is directly, uh, you know, I believe he's at the epicenter of the conversations right now. Certainly Pelosi and Schumer, um, Velasquez, Maloney, DeLauro. But I would say every single person, you know, if you have a phone, if you are able to make a call, set up phone trees. I mean, I think about it as urgently as, you know, the the voting uh, voting phone banks that we've been doing over the past year. I mean, at the end of the day, it is up to us, the people, to be holding our representatives accountable. And like I said, we need less politicians. We need more leadership. And this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. And 15 million people's lives hang in the balance. And as I said, it is passed in the House there is a vehicle for relief that is spelled out and done for them and has broad bipartisan support. Now it's coming down to politics as to whether it makes it into this last bill if, you know, this last relief bill um, does indeed get passed. And the truth is, you know, we can't wait for a new administration. We can't wait another two months. So many restaurants around the country, 10% of restaurants, just as an FYI, are located in New York. You know, think about that magnitude of what's happening when indoor dining closes today with regards, again, to employment and our and our communities and our people. Um, there there will be the point of no return if this is not done now. And what do you think? Uh, I mean, you mentioned politics and you mentioned PPE uh, not wanting to change it. Uh, and there's I think you've crossed the 50 number in terms of senators who are co-sponsoring and clearly supporting passage. So although I guess you still need a vote, what are the things that you, I mean, to me, it sounds like a no-brainer, but what are the things that those senators who are not supporting it, what do you think is influencing their their views? 
I think it's a mix. Look, I think again, this, I kept saying this being an election year and deep, deep partisan politics was the worst thing that could have ever happened to all of us. Um, because a lot of different things are at play and at stake and in the conversation that in a non-election year could be sort of set aside. But the stakes for each party are high. You know, right now, obviously, Georgia being in the balance, you know, <laughs> Senator McConnell, that is, you know, part of this. I mean, that's a very deep part of this. So we have to remember that there's a lot at play that we, I think, as regular citizens don't often see or think about. Um and I think, I think that's probably the biggest part of this. I think there's just a lot of partisan um, finger pointing. I think there's a lot of who's going to take credit for what, which to me is really a, a very sad one, but a joke nonetheless, because, you know, Americans are dying, Americans are struggling, businesses are being wiped out, industries are being lost and forgotten, you know, who cares about who takes the credit right now? I mean, you couldn't get lower than this in a very long time in our country's history. So, you know, unfortunately, I think that's the biggest thing. And then, like I said, I think, you know, those who were the force behind, you know, in particular PPP, by allowing another vehicle into a relief bill, I think there's a feeling that that would then concede that the original vehicle, which by the way, was created in an emergency. You know, I give, I do give credit and I even said this in March to lawmakers. Look, I, I understand, you know, you're trying to save a, a train crash while it's, you know, veering off the tracks and, you know, at full speed. I understand, but we also can't look at something that was created in an urgent, you know, an urgent situation with not full information and say that it's perfect and we're sticking to it. I mean, I think that that's incredibly unrealistic. Um, but alas, I think there is this sort of attachment to we created it, it works, and anything to the contrary, you know, shows cracks that we're not willing to to concede. And and that might look bad, you know, on our political party that we didn't, quote unquote, do a good job where, like I said, I mean, to me, I don't think we're talking about good or bad here. I think it's all, um, I think it's all painful and challenging. So I think the look towards sort of the report card and the credit and and which party's doing what is very misaimed. And again, I think sort of the election year is is the is the looming factor. I think underneath it all, unfortunately. And I, I, and that's I not what we nominate our representatives to do, right? And and we have higher hopes that when push comes to shove, they're doing what's right for all Americans um, and and keeping the larger scope in mind. And unfortunately, that has not been the case. Yeah, and I, I think I want to help listeners kind of also understand the stakes of this and why congressional national legislation is so important um, because to some degree, you could read it and you even said it, there doesn't, there isn't a plan B or there's not a viable plan B. But I think it might be helpful to, for people to understand why it, it, it why, for instance, the, the Save Restaurants, the IRC, has targeted Congress for this relief bill. Sorry, can you ask that question one more time? Well, well, I'm asking about the scale, right? I mean, I'm going to answer the question just to help you, right? <laughs> Part of the issue with Congress is that you, you, the, the problem, as I've understood, is so vast and so diffuse that without a kind of, the only people who can afford help that will be meaningful and lasting 
is at the congressional level? Am, or is there a, a kind of backup plan that the IRC has to come up with to kind of go state by state or city by city? Well, the challenge is that with this administration, states and cities were refused federal aid at the start of this crisis. So the very real truth is that regardless of will from state or cities, which I I, I do call into question, um, they don't have the capital. I mean, most states and cities are running a very sharp deficit because of this. I mean, think about all that's had to be spent um, you know, to address this crisis since March. I mean, there are policies that they can change, incentives, protections, um, and interactions that they can affect, but they don't have, I mean, every state and city, I think pretty much is running at a very sharp deficit and they have not received um, sufficient federal aid. So going state by state, city by city, honestly, I think would have been a fine tactic if we had to. And honestly, you've never met a more determined group of people than chefs and restaurateurs. Trust me, we would block and tackle all day long if we could. The the focus on Congress really was a necessity because there's not the capital lifeline at the state and city level. It just doesn't exist because of the pandemic. So for those who don't want to lose their neighborhood restaurants, who really enjoy dining out, whether it's still open or not, in terms of wanting it to be there or wanting kind of what they're used to in their normal life or communities that they move to because of their vibrant um, street life, is the main thing they can do to help is to lobby their senators if their senators aren't already on board? Or are there also some other things that, that people can think about doing? So there are a few things this week. The only thing that matters really is stalking your state senators and and representatives. If you go to saverestaurants.com, we have an email autofill. You put in where you're from. It autofills an email. It's very easy. If you sent a couple every single day and asked 10 of your friends to do the same and vice versa, honestly, the public pressure goes a long way. I would say, too, post as much as you can on social media. You know, you would be amazed what what a shift and a public outcry can do to shift even the most intransigent uh, politician. And then third is really thinking about where you're spending your money. I can promise you most listeners are probably far better off than 99% of restaurant workers right now. Think about the holidays. Think about what they're going through. Think about what they're suffering and, and give the gift of giving this year. Donate to organizations. Go to your favorite local restaurant and ask them what you can do. Um, this is going to take an enormous, enormous out of enormous effort and collective of every citizen to care, to raise awareness, to share their voice, to push their representatives, but also really to donate. So, you know, there are national organizations, but in New York, I founded Roar and we have a New York City employee relief fund that gives $500 cash grants to um, out-of-work restaurant employees uh, that we've partnered with Robinhood. If you go to RoarNewYork.org, um, you can very easily donate. We've been very fortunate. We've raised well over $2 million to date through this pandemic, which is most than most that a lot of than a lot of cities have raised for their own people um, towards this end. And really, you know, we're very we've kept it open and we've been actively fundraising, but obviously having to kick it up a notch given um, this current you know, new sad phase in in this crisis. So really thinking about 
where you're spending, what you're doing, call your local restaurants, order from them directly, call them and ask them how you can help. Every dollar you spend right now, you know, needs to be mindfully focused and and this industry needs you. That's the truth. It is going to take every single person. Great. That That's very helpful. So I wanted to ask you um, before we go to our last break about your own business model, which was, you know, uh, I would call it progressive in a good way <laughs> at about, you know, being more equitable and sustainable. And I think some of it was a reaction to what was already broken in the hospitality industry model. Given, given, but I also understand that usually that means it's more expensive um, or can be. Um, is it still viable in in a pending sort of collapse of the industry and to save it, people should just do whatever they can? Or is it actually more important? Um, I mean, I'm biased, but I tend to think the latter. I mean, to me, it's sort of a lot of resistance to change policies or new models or how to rethink the industry sort of came from a fear of, well, the industry has been skating on razor thin margins for, you know, the better part of one to two decades. Um, you know, and like I said, one of the reasons that we were so vulnerable to a crisis like this is really over taxation, over regulation from a government that does not understand our business. As I said, we get caught in the crossfire rather than being sort of thought of for nuanced policy. And we've also not really had a proper seat at the table to be doing it collaboratively. So, you know, we've really been, I would say, um, you know, squeezed by maybe <laughs> giving giving the benefit of the doubt, um, you know, I think with good intentions, but without collaboration, without input, and without thought of consequences, you know, our industry margins went from 20% across the board to 5% in the last decade. That's not a good scoreboard. And again, how do you take care of your people with that little wiggle room, with rising commodity prices, rising labor costs, rising insurance costs, um, rising regulatory costs, rising taxation. I mean, small businesses in this country, and and I would say restaurants most specifically because we employ so many. I mean, we have the lowest sales per headcount of any other industry, right? Like we are really a mass employing force in this country. We've never been considered, you know, for that. And so again, a lot of policies, a lot of regulation, a lot of taxation really penalizes you for having headcount. And and we've been crushed, you know, we've been compressed as a result and really left without a lot of levers to pull, despite the fact that, you know, business is changing across the world, but especially here in America, and how people want to do things more equitably, more sustainably, more progressively. If you're caught amidst this crossfire of, of small business regulation and taxation that is, you know, really unviable, it's hard to do that. So to me, I think it's more important than ever. But, you know, as we've been saying since March, it's going to take real partnership from every level of government. Because if we go back to, quote unquote, the way things were, nothing can change with a 5% profit margin. It just can't. It, that's actually impossible. I don't care what kind of business you run. Um, and certainly not coming out of a mass hole, um, you know, that 2020 and, and most of 2021 is going to bring to our businesses. But by the same token, I think this is the baseline chance to say, you know what, we've pretty much lost everything. Everything has gone to zero. 
you know, we don't have much to lose by taking a risk on new policies, new structures, new paradigms. This is the time to do it, but we can't do it alone and we can't do it with a foot on our necks. So it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a village to do, but I do think this is the time. I think this great reckoning um, is certainly the time to rebuild in a way that I think most independent restaurant owners have wanted to. You know, we, I think most of us, we want to be an amazing place to work. Like I said, our industry is people. Everything we do is about people. You know, everything that arrives to your seat when you're dining at dinner was created by an amazingly talented human. You know, it's not robots. It's not technology. It's people. People grow your food. People make your food. People serve your food. People make you feel good. And that's what we're in the business of. But when employing more people than other industries, than almost any other industry, um, you know, isn't seen as something positive and worth value and worth incentivizing in our country, that's going to be hard to do at the level that we're trying to do it, you know, in a new, in a new society, a new culture, a new age. I think it's high time that it changes structurally. And I think Julia would fully endorse that um, <laughs> framing of, well, people. She was an incredibly social creature, and part of her interest in chefs and restaurants was being out and meeting people and talking to them. And often she was more interested in who was working in the kitchen than what was on the plate. So here, here, and after the break, Camilla is going to come back, and uh, she's going to share her own Julia moment. The new book of Julia quotes, people who love to eat are always the best people, which I think Camilla was just proving, and other wisdom is out now in a hardcover and ebook from Kanaf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. It would really make a lovely holiday gift and a inspiring gift to someone who may be having a hard time as a result of the pandemic. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Camilla, what's your Julia moment? Well, I would say less about a Julia moment, but I think for me, the biggest way that she's influenced me, first and foremost, she is from Los Angeles. um, And not many of us are real LA locals, so that always means a lot. Um, And I think for me, you know, Julia was sort of the preeminent OG multi-hyphenate, right? I mean, I think for her it was nothing was off limits. And she always saw the ability to learn something new, you know, shift her career, take on a new challenge, all with the goal of of educating, delighting and improving those around her. I mean, if you really look at sort of our industry and where we are today, it it does follow a lot of her career path. And I find it hugely inspiring, particularly as you know, later in her life, creating the foundation, um, which I know supports um, this podcast and podcasts like it. Um, you know, I think she was hugely ahead of her time. I mean, also particularly as a woman in the time that she was raised, um, you know, we can't take that for granted. And I, I look at her with a tremendous amount of gratitude and admiration for 
the multiple paths that she paved to show that there's not one straight road to get to where you want to go. And there's always a new challenge to take on. I think her commitment to philanthropy through the foundation, you know, towards the end of her life, you know, to me is also the most inspiring something that I take note of, right? You know, it's one thing um, to do good, but it's another to pay it forward and improve others um, through that, through that success and through that hard work. So to me, she's a, a huge beacon and a huge lighthouse and, and a, a memory and a legacy that we need now more than ever. Well, I think that is the perfect way to sum up today's show. And I really thank you for joining us and being so articulate and passionate about this incredibly important and incredibly vital and, and pivotal moment in history to do something really important for society. So I really hope all our listeners um, take Camilla's words to heart and take action as much as they can in this remaining end of the year and congressional session. Camilla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for all the work that you're doing to support our industry. We're great, very grateful. It is our pleasure. We want you to be there still. Thanks everyone for listening. And on that note, wishing you happy holidays or the happiest you can organize. Here's to 2021 being a year of much greater stability, unity, and prosperity for all of us. Are you ready to help? As a reminder, go to saverestaurants.com right now, and you can click on Take Action. As Camilla said, it'll take a minute. Stay up to date with the effort. It's at INDP Restaurants on Twitter and Instagram. As Camilla mentioned, if you are or know a New York-based restaurateur or restaurant employee in need of support, it's go to roarnewyork.org, or you can go there to donate to help. If you want to learn more about Camilla's own business, Westbourne, it's at Westbourne, and Bourne is B-O-U-R-N-E-N-Y-C on Facebook, and it's just at Westbourne on Twitter and Instagram. Keep up with the foundation and new podcast episodes at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram or at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.